Lord, we thank you again as we do week after week for this great book and for choosing to reveal to us and to unveil before us the things that are to come. We thank you, Father, for the great hope that it instills in us as well as, Lord, the motivation that it instills in us to speak the name of Jesus and to be true and, and constant about our desire to see people saved. Fathers, we head into Revelation 19 tonight. I pray your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And lead us through and show us what you have for us. Father, give us hearts that, that are wide open to receive your word, but also, Father, hearts that are willing to question um, things that I may teach tonight uh, with open minds, that we might truly discern what is your word. I pray, Father, that we'll never be in a place where, where anyone just assumes because... Pastor Rick teaches it, but that's the way it is. Please, Father, keep us discerning your word over mine. And may we always be that way with any teaching we hear, Lord. May we always go back and compare and study and dig in to know the truth that you have for us. Because I believe your word is clear. And it certainly is precious. So write it now into our hearts, Lord. Embed it deep within. And bless us tonight as we study this book again in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... We come to Revelation 19 at the end of the tribulation. You may recall the end of chapter 18 was the last hour. In one hour, Babylon is laid waste. In a single hour, wiped off the face of the planet. And we begin Revelation 19 right after that. Now, I've been asked a question that I want to answer as we begin tonight. And it's an interesting question. I've been asked it several times, actually, over the years. And the question is simply this, will we, from our vantage point in heaven, as the church that has been raptured, caught up and tucked away with the Lord, will we watch the tribulation? Will we, from that perspective, be able to see what's going on here on planet Earth, to be aware of all the things happening? And it's an excellent question just to consider. But to answer it, let me take you back 20 years to July of 1986. 20 years ago this month, AIDS was on the rise. An estimated increase of a thousand percent by 1991, they expected for AIDS, and, and it, it met that. Uh, at the same time, July of '86, Colonel, Colonel Oliver North and National Security Chief John Poindexter were implicated in the Iran-Contra affair. Do you remember that hitting the news? Some of you do. Um, July of 1986, oil fell to $11 a barrel. <laughs> what is it today? Seventy something. Why? That was the good old days. Reagan halted all trade to Libya, calling Gaddafi a barbarian. NASA was still reeling from the Challenger disaster, which happened in January of that year. And the Russian nuclear power plant at Chernobyl had just experienced a massive accidental explosion and a subsequent fallout, killing 30 people and requiring the evacuation of 135,000 people. July 1986. And I was completely unaware of all of it. I had no idea any of this was going on because in July of 1986, I was on my honeymoon in Hawaii with my lovely bride. I wasn't thinking about Chernobyl or the Challenger or the Contras. These things were the furthest thing from my mind in that great, uh, great vacation we had. Still, I think today unmatched as far as the best vacation we ever had together. Eleven days in Hawaii, nothing to think about but just sun and each other and each other. I was on an 11 day honeymoon and I was not thinking about tragedy and turmoil and tribulation going on in the world 
And I believe that that is the way it's going to be for us during the seven years. Will we watch the tribulation? I don't believe we're going to watch the tribulation any more than a bride on her honeymoon cares to view anything other than her groom. We will be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Why would we care about anything else or look toward anything else? We will be enraptured following the rapture. We will be caught up with our emotions of love for Jesus, worship for Jesus. We're just going to be with Him and nothing else is going to matter in that day. We will be so overwhelmed and overcome to be in the presence of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 43 verse 18 says, Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? And as we come to the end of earth's seven year tribulation... In our ongoing study here in Revelation, remember that at this point in history, you and I will be nearing the end of our seven-year celebration. For the tribulation happening on earth, the celebration is with the saints in heaven, with the Lamb. And in fact, as we'll see tonight, you get to Revelation 19, and we will be in the process of preparation for the greatest event in all of earth's history, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. That grand and glorious second coming. So saddle up your horses because we're going to ride like the wind. And it's one of the coolest truths, probably in my spiritual life and, and my study time in the Word, it's one of the most fantastic truths I have ever run across. And that is not only the return of Jesus, but our following after Him, which we will study tonight. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, one of my favorite passages, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope, speaking of that distinct event of our deliverance, pulled up, caught up, kept out of the hour of the time of wrath, and the glorious appearing, or the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus. Two very distinct events, and we've looked very carefully at those over the preceding weeks coming up to tonight. But after all this, in this glorious appearing when Jesus returns into earth's atmosphere and sets foot on planet earth again, as the Bible says explicitly that he will, his feet will set down on the Mount of Olives, we are going to come along for the ride. And it's an amazing, amazing thought. Because you see, when Jesus says in John chapter 14 that I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you to where I am, that where I am, there you may also be, that is an ongoing promise for us. It's not that we're going to go to the place prepared and be with him for seven years and then he's got to go take care of business. No, when he goes, we go. Because where he is, that's where we're going to be. And my desire, my intention for all eternity is wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. I used to joke around about coming back during that time of the Millennial Kingdom when we're called to rule and reign with Him on planet Earth. And I like to say that, you know, I'm calling Maui. That's, that's going to be my place of ruling and reigning right there. I've changed my mind. Jerusalem. I want to be in Jerusalem. I want to be right where He is. Serving in His court. Walking before Him, seeing His face, worshiping Him day in and day out. I want to be where Jesus is. And He promises us that we can be, that we will be, that where He is, we will also be. Well, with that in mind, let's get into this great chapter. Revelation 19, one of my favorite in the whole book. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Where is this loud voice? It's in heaven. Okay, so that sets the stage. This is where we are right now. 
in this chapter, the things that take place here, happen in heaven. Be aware of that. Be alert to that. It's very important. And this voice we hear is a great multitude, which is a comforting thought. Because Jesus says that the way is narrow and few there will be who find it. The Bible indicates that there are, of all the mass of humanity over all of history, there will be a narrow road traveled by only a few. And yet we come to Revelation 19 and we see that there is a great multitude in heaven. And I think we're going to be surprised. I think when we get to heaven, we are going to be amazed and surprised. And one of the great surprises is this great multitude. It's going to be bigger than we expect quantitatively. I think in the moment that we finally come up and we're caught up and we see who else has been caught up, who is the church, we're going to be amazed quantitatively. It's going to be much bigger than we really thought it would be. Throngs, masses, a great multitude, as the Bible says, of people. But it's also going to be bigger qualitatively. We're going to see people there that we didn't expect to see. It's going to be one of those times we'll be looking around and we'll be thrilled to death that... Well, not to death. We'll be thrilled to life, I guess, at that point. We'll be thrilled to all eternity that certain people are there that we weren't sure if they were going to be there. And in some of our cases, they're going to be doing the same thing. You're here too. Well, great. How'd that happen? It's going to be amazing. But here's the heart of the Lord. He wants, He wants as many people as possible. If it were God's call, and by the way, the only reason it isn't is because He gave us free will. But if it were completely God's call, there wouldn't be a person born on the face of the earth who would not go to heaven. That's his desire. That's his heart. 2 Peter 3.9 Peter said the Lord's not slow about his promise, that is his return, as some count slowness. But he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The reason why we've spent 2,000 years looking for and waiting for the return of Jesus is because God's saying, if we can save one more... One more hour is maybe one more person. One more day, five more people. One more week, a hundred more may accept Jesus. This week, and by the way, this may be the week where the words you speak to someone is the final word they need to hear. And they'll accept Jesus and be part of the reason that God has been waiting. His desire is that we're there. If you've ever felt alone in your faith, or if you ever do feel alone in your faith, be encouraged There is a great host of people who believe in Jesus, who are in the same place you are, and who will be there when you get there. Know that there are many Christians around you, some that you are completely unaware of. Even in the workplace, you may be surprised. There's someone there who is praying to the same Lord Jesus you are, for other people there. In fact, I encourage you to look around for them, find them. Because they're all around us. And there's something else that's a great, a great encouragement to us about the, the number of saints, the number of people saved. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. The Hebrew writer says there's a a great cloud of cheerleaders who are cheering you on, who are aware right now of what's happening on planet Earth, who are surrounding us and saying, go, come on, you can do it. This is great. The witnesses, those who see what's happening surrounding us, this great cloud. And this chapter begins then with a shout of this great multitude in heaven. And by the way, when is this? When does this take place? 
That's it. That's it. <laughs> Sharp as a tack, Stacy. Good job. After these things. That is the time stamp. Remember, we've seen throughout the book of Revelation that continues us moving forward. After what things? After the final outpouring of God's wrath on earth. After the fall of religious and commercial Babylon. After the tribulation period has reached its final conclusion. Now we come after these things. Metatauta. And it's the second to last time you're going to hear this phrase uttered in this book. There is one more time. It's a time that is absolutely shocking. I'll read it to you. Revelation 20 verse 3 tells us after these things which is after the millennial kingdom, after the thousand year reign of perfect peace and prosperity with Jesus, after these things, Satan must be released for a short time. That's a stunning thought. And we'll deal with that next week. So you'll only notice it uttered once more following that, that thousand year kingdom reign of Christ. But here after the tribulation, the voice of a great multitude in heaven break out into four consecutive hallelujah choruses that are going to make Handel's Messiah pale by comparison. Four hallelujahs. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Four times in these first six verses you're going to see it repeated. But did you know that the word hallelujah is only spoken four times in all of scripture and it's all right here in Revelation 19. The word hallelujah doesn't exist in other places in scriptures, not in this way. Some translations of scripture will translate in the Psalms a hallelujah, but the word is not hallelujah there. It's a different phrase. Hallelujah is a transliteration to the Greek of the Hebrew phrase halal, which is praise. And Yah for Yahweh. Praise Yah. Halal Yah. Praise Yahweh. Praise God. Now what's cool about this is it's one of only two words which are universal to every single language on the planet. Two words. Hallelujah is one of them. That every language, instead of having a different word for it, has the word hallelujah. Uses the word hallelujah. Interesting. One of two words. So let's go to the first one. It says, this great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So the first hallelujah is a saving praise. It's a saving praise. The very creation of the world has been waiting a long time to sing this hallelujah. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans chapter 8. In verse 18. Romans 8, 18. <clears throat> Paul is writing here to the church in Rome, a church that is experiencing great persecution at the hands of Nero at the time of this writing. And he says the following, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation, watch this, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. 
And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Paul says at this point in our lives, we groan in expectation. Did you know it's biblical to groan? The older I get, the better that makes me feel. (laughs) Walking up and down stairs and making groans and, and, and noises that my father used to make. I remember Dad coming down the stairs and turning the corner. Oh, oh, you know, they come on down the stairs, and I think, boy, Dad's just getting up there. Now I'm doing the same thing. My children are pointing it out. These same groans, but we groan in our hearts. We groan in our hearts for something that is coming, in anticipation of a body, of a life that's eternal, that's glorious, that has no more pain and no more sorrow and no more heartache. And no more struggles or stress. And no more visits to the doctor. None of that. All done. We groan in expectation, in eagerness, with perseverance, Paul says. We wait eagerly, eagerly for it. We wait eagerly for a specific event. What event? Back in verse 19 it says, We wait with anxious longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I want to share something interesting. I, I, Sean, I think you were the one who we were talking about this, about the rocks and the trees. Is that right? Talk to Sean about the source for this, but he was saying that he recently had heard that science has figured out something interesting about rocks and trees. Because all of creation, Paul says, is groaning in, in expectation. And we read that and we think, okay, that's, that's flowery language. He's being poetic because trees don't groan, do they? And rocks don't groan, do they? Well, science tells us that rocks, apparently, rocks, have a distinctive sound that they make. A very, very low hum, is it? A low sound that actually can be measured in terms of decibels. Rocks. That trees actually have a sound that they make that can be measured. In terms of maybe even communicating with each other. Now, I'm not getting out there and getting weird. This is Sean, okay? <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. I think Jesus must have been right when he said, I tell you, if they remain silent, the stones will cry out. Creation is groaning, is waiting. The world is looking for this revelation of the sons of God. This anticipation. So when does this happen, this revelation of the sons of God? It will happen seven years past any second now. Seven years after, any time now, the sons of God will be revealed. You see, we need to understand that the sons of God are not revealed in the rapture of the church. We disappear in the rapture. We're taken out. We're gone. Where are they? That's not revelation. That's hiding away. That's escape. That's, that's a rescue. But the sons of God will be revealed at the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. The first hallelujah then is a saving praise, a hallelujah for salvation. Going back, verse uh, verse 2, Revelation 19. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 2, because, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And so a second time they said, Hallelujah! 
Her smoke rises up forever and ever. The second hallelujah praise here, the second hallelujah chorus is a substantiated praise. A substantiated praise. We've pointed this out before, but it's critical to to understand, especially at times when we don't understand what the Lord is doing. And that's simply this, that God's actions are holy, righteous, and just, and will be substantiated, will be justified. This moment in this second hallelujah chorus, as it is sung by this great multitude in heaven, which includes you and me, which I think is fantastic that we're actually reading a biblical quote of ourselves. This is us singing here. When we sing hallelujah, hallelujah, His judgments are righteous and true, we will at that point have understanding we don't have now. We will substantiate by our own understanding what God has done. That indeed He's righteous. Indeed He's true. Indeed all of His judgments were right on target. And I remind myself of that from time to time when I don't understand what God is doing. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then, together with all the saints, we will cry out, Hallelujah, God's actions are substantiated. Verse 4 going on says, And the 24 elders, 24 elders, remember them? Probably, probably, 12 of the patriarchs, sons of Jacob, and the 12 apostles, we talked about that in an earlier study, 24 elders, and the four living creatures, those cherubim, remember the four-faced cherubim? Amazing stuff back in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We read about them. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. This is the third one now. The third hallelujah chorus is a sure praise. A sure praise. For in this hallelujah, the elders and the cherubim, they chime in another word, Amen. And Amen is the second word that is universal to the human language. In every language, it is a word, it is the word that is universal. Hallelujah and Amen. Every language speaks those two words together. Amen. Amen. From this side of heaven, when we say Amen, what we're saying is, may it be done. In Jesus' name, Amen. In Jesus' name, so shall it be. May it be done, Lord. This side of heaven, Amen, is a plea. But on that side of heaven, in heaven, amen is not a plea, it's a promise. It's an absolute. It is done, count on it. Not may it be done, Lord, but it is done. Hallelujah, amen, everything is accomplished. Now at this point in the Hallelujah Chorus, something happens. There's a little interjection here. You can call it a summons to praise. Verse 5 tells us that a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. A summons to praise. The praise is already going on, but now a voice from the throne summons even more praise, calls out even more praise to God the Father. Who is calling out here? And it could be one of the cherubim. Probably not. Specifically, this voice comes directly from the throne. And who is on the throne, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. I believe the voice calling out from the throne is probably, most likely, Jesus. And listen to what he says again. Give praise to our God. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I thought Jesus was God. And now he's saying give praise to our God. We have some insight here, gang, into the very nature of the Trinity. First of all, in Jesus, we have one who we've seen over and over and over in Scripture completely identifies with us. Even to the point of calling us his brothers and sisters. 
Interesting that Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And here we see Jesus doing it. In the midst of the praise. Jesus on the throne hearing the praise, receiving the praise, gets caught up in the praise and says hey more praise for God. And this is what the Trinity does. This is what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all do. The Spirit brings glory to the Son. The Son points to the Father. The Father honors the Son. There is no greater than or above that they are all equal and all love so much within this Godhead, each other, that they point to each other constantly. This is how you know the Holy Spirit, by the way, is involved in a fellowship of believers when Jesus is magnified. When he's glorified, the Holy Spirit is there because that's what the Holy Spirit does is bring attention to Jesus. In a fellowship where the whole focus is on the Holy Spirit, I question whether that's really the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible is clear. The Spirit does not draw attention to himself. The Spirit points the way to Jesus. Glorify Jesus. And here I believe we have Jesus saying, glorify God. And in another place we saw God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's amazing. You go to one member of the Trinity and they point to the other two. Because the whole of the Godhead is our Father, the Son who has saved us and the Spirit who resides within us. Perfect unity in worship. And we haven't experienced anything in worship like we will experience on that day in that place. So a summons to praise in the middle of all this. And then we come to the fourth hallelujah chorus. It's a sovereign praise. Verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. Here we go again. And like the sound of many waters. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. By the way, the sound of many waters we've seen in the past was Jesus' voice. Right? In the first early chapters of Revelation, his voice was sounded like many waters. And then we see the mighty peals of thunder. And the thunder is a description of the Holy Spirit. So joining together now with the great multitude may well be the voice of Jesus and the voice of the Spirit. And all together, God the Father and all the people gathering around are having one magnificent hallelujah chorus where it is said, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Now what's great about this, this sovereign praise, is it's finally here. Now you and I know God reigns. We know he's the boss. We know he's in charge. We know that it's a done deal. But the world doesn't. The world is still in rebellion. But it's finally here at this point, Revelation 19.6. What the prophets longed to see is here now. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1 verse 10. As to our salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets wondered, when will that happen? When will it come? Well, it's finally here. It's finally here. What the angels longed to understand. 1 Peter 1.12 It was revealed to them, that is the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You see, because angels don't know everything that's going on, they have clueless moments. They're watching as God unfolds history before them, as he pours forth his plan. They're wondering, what is up with this? I don't understand. Why can't we pull him off the cross, Lord? 
Why can't we help him? Can't we just rescue him out of the garden right now? Why? I don't get it, Lord. What is this? He's dying for... But now he's in the grave. What's going on? Where is he? What, is he ever going to be back? Can you rescue him now? He's resurrected. What's the... I mean, all of this for the angels going, huh? Wow. Amazing. People have a tendency to elevate angels a little higher than the Bible elevates them. Do you know that Paul says we will judge the angels? There's a thought to get your mind around. We will judge the angels. Michael, get over here. Straighten that tie. I don't know how it's going to be. Interesting. But it's finally here, the absolute sovereign reign of our Lord. It's a hallelujah of sovereignty of the reign of God. Turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35. The wonderful prophecy of this very promise of the reign, the sovereign reign of God that is to come in this hallelujah chorus. Remember we read in, in, Revelation, or in Romans chapter 8 that Paul said that creation is groaning and struggling right now and, and desiring to see that revealing of the sons of God. Well listen to this. Isaiah 35 verse 1. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The desert's going to do this. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Listen to this. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, we would say stressed out, take courage and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then the lame will leap like deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Didn't that happen with Jesus the first time? Yes, but it was only a snapshot. It was only a picture of what was to come, of the massive healing that comes at the hands of Jesus when He returns in all of His glory. For then He was on earth as the Son of Man, now coming back as God in the flesh. God now glorified completely. And so He will save us, and the eyes of the blind open, the ears of the deaf will be, will be unstopped, the lame will leap, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. Oh, how I would love to have reeds and rushes on my property today. Especially after spending hours cutting down thorns and thistles and the whole time thinking about the curse on Adam and doing a little cursing of Adam myself that afternoon. Big, thick stalks. I mean, on our, on our septic grain field, lovely place, I'm trying to cut this stuff down, and we're talking thistles that are as big around as fingers. Hundreds of them, just all, st- I, you know, I let it go too long. But grasses, yes, reeds and rushes, wonderful. Verse 8, a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. The redeemed. So if you're thinking, well, I'm kind of a fool, 
and I'm kind of unclean, remember, you may feel a fool, you may feel unclean, but you are the redeemed. And the blood of Jesus is, is effective to cover all of your sin and to wipe away the uncleanness in our lives that we might walk on this holy road. Verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord, listen to this, will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, the sovereign praise of God. Now back to Revelation 19, verse 7. For it continues on. This fourfold hallelujah chorus has gone on. And now in verse 7, the singing continues as the narrative moves us forward. Verse, four, uh, verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The bride. And you know who the bride is. But the bride is a very specific group of people. And I want to point something out just for you to consider tonight. The bride is unique. The bride is specific. And it does not include the tribulation saints. What do you mean? Those alive, those who are in the tribulation, those who don't make it out in the rapture. Those who don't have a faith in Jesus Christ today, if Jesus were to come tonight. But those who find faith in Jesus during that tribulation period are not the bride. One of the things that will be missed by someone who doesn't come to Jesus, to faith in Jesus, until that tribulation period, is they will miss out on the marriage feast of the Lamb. They are not the bride. The bride is a limited group of people, literally limited to those who come to faith in Jesus over the past 2,000 years. That's the bride. It doesn't even include the Old Testament saints. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and, and the others. It doesn't include that. It's the bride. The bride is simply the church. The Bible's very interesting about this because the Old Testament talks about Israel specifically as the wife of God. Whereas the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. It's, it's very unique and uniquely different. Let me give you a little more background on this. There's an interesting Old Testament saint who makes this very clear for us. An Old Testament saint, an Old Testament prophet, if you will, who is found in the New Testament. He is the last of the great Old Testament prophets, the last one to prophesy for the Lord before the advent of Jesus the first time, before Jesus comes on the scene. You know his name, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's invited to be a friend of the bridegroom, but even John the Baptist recognizes that he is not part of the bride. Listen to this. John chapter 3, verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses, he says, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, I must decrease. What is John saying? He's saying, I'm not the bride. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm part of the wedding party. You know, I might be a best man. I might be lined up there with those standing up and witnessing this marriage of the bride and the groom. But I am not part of the bride. I am a friend of the bridegroom. John recognized this himself, that he himself was not a member of the bride. The bride is the church. The bride is those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith without seeing. Believing without seeing. Not belief based on seeing. 
and the preparation for this wedding day has already begun. The church is the bride and we are in preparation even today. This is an interesting verse. Jesus said about John the Baptist, Matthew 11, 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus places John the Baptist on the highest pinnacle of all the prophets of Israel. No one greater than John the Baptist. However, he says, the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. A person who is least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than John. Why? Because you are the bride. You're the bride. And to the bridegroom, the friend is great. (laughs) But he's not the bride. We are the bride. Another interesting thing that you can go back and check. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25, 1 through 10. The verse is not up there. Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Remember that story? Where Jesus talks about there were five and five and, and the first five had enough oil for their lamps and they conserved it and so they were ready when the bridegroom came and the other five went off to buy oil because they ran out. They weren't ready. Who are these ten virgins? It's not the church. The ten virgins are a picture of Israel. Those who are ready when he came the first time and those who were not. The church is not one of the ten virgins. The church is the bride coming with the bridegroom. That's the church. And so when Jesus talks about that parable, he's looking at two different groups of people, those ten virgins, a picture of Israel, the bride who is coming with the bridegroom. So how does the bride make herself ready? We see this, the bride has made herself ready. The marriage has come, it's time. Sound the wedding bells. How have we made ourselves ready? John 6, 28. The people said to Jesus, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said to them, and I hope you're getting to memorize this by now, use this verse a lot. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. There's your work. There's your preparation. That's how you get ready. Now you may protest saying, Rick, I read ahead to the the next verse. I know what's coming and it's all about actions. Well, let's read that. Maybe I missed something here. It was given to her to clothe herself, that is the bride, in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It does say righteous acts. It's the actions. It's the righteousness of the saints. That's what we're clothed in. The good deeds. The righteous things that we do. But I thought I was not righteous. In fact, I thought the Bible said none was righteous. No, not one. That our robes are as filthy rags, Isaiah says. Well, listen to this for a moment. The word saints here is hagios. It's a good word to be aware of. Hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, if you're writing it down in notes. Hagios is literally holy ones. Holy ones. Referring to all those people who have believed in Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to come back to hagios in just a second. But here's the question. Does verse 8 assume that there are righteous deeds that we must perform that will become our garments, our wedding garments in preparation for the marriage? Do we have deeds that we must do? The prophet Isaiah describes the wedding garments for us. Listen to this, Isaiah 61 verse 10. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. We gang, the bride, the church, are robed in His righteousness. In His 
purity, in His perfection, in all that He purchased for us with His blood on the cross of Calvary. It is not my righteousness that looks like fine linen, bright and clean. As I said before, you know what my righteousness looks like? Isaiah 64 verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. And so we come back to the same question. Then if it's not our righteous deeds, it's His righteousness. How do we as the church, as the bride, prepare for the wedding? And the answer is very simple. Embrace the grace. Embrace the grace. The work of the groom's hands. Embrace that which Jesus has done for you. Spoke about this this morning. Do not embrace religion. Embrace relationship. Embrace Jesus. Time spent with Him. Again, Cheryl and I had had lunch today with a young couple that's going to be getting married. And as we talked about it, I said the same thing I say to every young couple we talk to that's going to get married. You put Jesus at the center and things will be great. The more you love Jesus, the more you're going to love your husband. The more you love Jesus, the more you're going to love your wife. Jesus is the key. Loving Him. Relationship with Him. And all this desire to be righteous and holy, it will happen if we're focused on Jesus. It's a done deal. That part of the growth of our spiritual lives. Because you know, and we've, we've talked a lot about obedience, that love is manifested in obedience. We do have a call and to live lives worthy of the calling in Jesus. God's called us to be righteous. And so we do desire to walk the way He wants us to walk. But the power to do that is found in grace. It's found in the relationship we have with Jesus. And the older I get, the more I see this. Those who are passionately in love with Jesus have no problem growing in righteousness because He provides it for them. Those who are not sure about Jesus but trying to live religious lives have a tough time with being righteous. They tend to be more judgmental. They tend to have their eyes on other people more than on themselves or on the Lord. And so keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. All it takes is one look at the groom's hands at the groom's hands to see the finished work of the cross that he has accomplished for us. Verse 9. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So there are those who are going to be invited to the marriage supper. They get to be there. They're a part of it. But they are not the bride. There's the bride and there are the friends of the groom and the friends of the bride. Those who will be there aside from the bride. Those who are invited now today, and we practice it here at the bridge on a weekly basis, we have a symbolic marriage supper. A shadowy representation of this real feast to come. A very shadowy rep- representation because it's just a little cup. And it's just a little piece of bread. And certainly far shy of any kind of a feast. But Jesus told his followers at the last Passover that his own feasting would be put on hold until this marriage feast of the Lamb. He said in Luke 22:15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this, share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And now at the marriage feast of the Lamb, Jesus will once again drink of the wine. He will eat the bread. He will feast with the bride. And so communion in and of itself, the Lord's Supper, it's not just a memorial for looking back. 
it is something that allows us to look forward as well. What, what did Paul say? 1 Corinthians 11.26 As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You're looking back to proclaim the death. You're looking forward until He comes in that day when we will share the marriage feast of the Lamb with the Lamb with Jesus Christ.